Welcome to Noble Warrior. My name is CK Lin. Noble Warriors who I interview thought leaders about their journey from the first mountain of achievement to the second mountain of fulfillment so that you can find your purpose, clarify your vision, and create your own legacy in meaningful ways. If you have any friends who are on this journey who could use more inspiration to take that leap of faith, go ahead and share this episode with them. They'll thank you for it. My next guest is Todd Rose. He's the author of two best-selling books, Dark Horse and The End of Average. He just published his newest book. Go to Amazon, find his new book, Collective Illusions. You won't regret it. He's the co-founder and president of a think tank, Populous, dedicated to transform how we learn, work, and live so that all people have the opportunities to live fulfilling lives. Imagine a world where you get to live your best, most authentic life where you can follow your heart, listen to your gut, and do what you love. You don't need to imagine it. Dr. Rose has found breakthrough principles to achieve lasting fulfillment. We talked about how there are three drivers and three obstacles to fundamental well-being. In offer penetrated insight on how to build these drivers and get rid of these obstacles. We talked about how to take these insights, like finding a fit between our individuality in our environment, into our lives, into how we make day-to-day decisions. We talked about the different ways to predict your own behavior. For example, personality psychology versus if-then signatures. We also talked about how we have all the know-how, all the technology, all the resources to go beyond the individualistic to the society level. We talked about the environment that fosters social trust, to make it happen, we talked about the zero-sum game mentality as the main barrier to realizing this. We also talked about public sentiment as the most powerful tool we have at our disposal to shift our culture. Lastly, we talked about how social change could happen at a speed and scale that is unimaginable and that we have in our power to unleash fulfillment flourishing and contribution on a scale that we have never seen before in human history. So if you're an overachiever looking to find fulfillment beyond achievement, or if you care to make a societal impact, Todd Rose will unlock new worlds for you. Please enjoy my conversation with former Harvard researcher Todd Rose. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk. I just hit the ground running. Dark Horse is the mindset that empowers you or whoever's listening to consistently make the right choices that fit your unique interests, your abilities and circumstances, and will guide you to a life of passion, purpose, and achievement. So you actually started this journey 2013 when you started to research this. So this is just a through line of this. So tell us, what's your origin story? So how far back do you want me to go? Because I can tell you, we can talk intellectual curiosity, how I arrived at it, but the personal path, which they, they, they intertwine quite a bit. Um, well, what compelled you to first explore the science of individuality? Okay. So look, um, you know, on a personal side, the, sh- the short version, we can come back to it is, you know, I, I grew up um, in where it just like school didn't work for me. I, I was such a bad fit. I really internalized that I wasn't very smart. Um, it culminated with me failing out of high school. Um, and my girlfriend got pregnant at the time. She's still my wife today, uh, 28 years later. Um, and we ended up, I ended up working in minimum wage jobs and I ended up, so 
realizing I'd hit rock bottom, had to turn my life around. And, you know, the path that going from a high school dropout to eventually uh, getting my doctorate at Harvard and then becoming a professor, I realized pretty quickly that, um, that if I was going to have success and I was going to find a more fulfilling life, doing the sort of one size fits all <laughs> way of doing that clearly hadn't worked for me. So I was going to have to make different choices. So that was the a personal side of it. But how at, old were you at the time? How old were you when that, when that insight, the light so bulb I, went off? It was actually, I started, um, I decided I was going to go back. I was going to go to college, which was kind of funny given that I had a, literally had a 0.9 GPA when I filled out of high school. So, um, and that insight came, you know, I decided I, I had to do something because I didn't want the life that I had in terms of the jobs that I was doing. Um, and I got my GED and enrolled in an open enrollment um, uh, school called Weber State University. Great place. And my dad actually told me, so I was um, 20. And my dad said, look, I don't know exactly what the right answer is. But what I could tell you is probably doing more of what you did before isn't going to work. And so I, I approached everything from the standpoint of this has to work. We only had enough money to, to pay for a semester and I was going to need to somehow get a scholarship or something if I didn't want to go back to my, my, the last job I had. No kidding. I was giving enemas for $7 an hour. That was like the mm. worst job. And so mm. look, I mean, it's honest work and it needs to be done. Mm. So I'm not like, but that's not my, that wasn't my career aspiration. Right. Um, it wasn't your calling. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Enemas. So, yes, yes. so, so I started making, I knew that like, okay, that the doing what everybody else did wasn't going to work. And so I had to pay attention to like who I was. And, and the truth is, is it sounds a lot more like I was really thoughtful about it. I just kind of was like filling my way around. And I knew like, for example, some obvious things, like for me, it was the kind of professor that I had made a big difference. Right. Um, I knew that I needed to be very, very engaged in the topic because I didn't have study skills yet. And so I was maintaining a high level of motivation would allow me to get through not being a good student. Um, and I can circle back. I've got some, like, there was a defining moment for me that really taught me about the power of fit that changed my life. In fit as journey. in but physically fit? Fit like, no, like a good fit, like part of that pursuing fulfillment and having success it's so much about creating a fit between who you are as an individual and the environment that you're in. Right. And, and I just think we forget that. And that'll be a lesson that comes back around with dark horse as well. But I, and um, I can tell you that story, or if you want to circle back to it, it's up to you. Let's come back later. Okay. So, so I had this personal experience. So I went from a 0.9 GPA. I graduated as the honor student of the year, uh, from Weber State, 3.97 GPA, pre-med, psychology, um, and got into Harvard. And so I knew intuitively that something about my individuality had mattered for that. When I got to Harvard, I was fortunate to study under a scientist uh, named Kurt Fisher, who had pioneered one this new science called the science of individuality. And it's basically this. For over a hundred years before the way we had done science and in some ways still do it in some sectors today is rather than study you as an individual, we would literally just get a sample of the population, study them and then make inferences about everybody. Right. And that's still true. Like I, I was trained in neuroscience and like most, most 
things you see in the magazines or reports about brain imaging was like an average of a bunch of people's brains. So it turns out, perhaps not surprisingly, that when we started looking at individuals, what we found was that the group average often applied to very few people and quite often literally represented nobody. And it was kind of embarrassing, right? So we actually had to like think, uh oh, like, so we did new methods, new approaches to starting with individuals and then working your way up to generalized theories. That approach to science has taken off and it, it is, it's changed. I mean, think about personalized medicine. That's right. Um, like in education, it's changing how we think about learning and development. Um, some of the most important things for me, like in nutrition, like the listeners right now, I mean, you think about uh, metabolic problems, particularly in the US, right? Uh, huge issue. Well, the whole approach to say the glycemic index, which tells us this food elevates your blood sugar a certain amount. And we, we all live by that if we want to try to keep um, from getting diabetes, right? It turns out my colleagues in Israel who are part of this science found out that like, no kidding, nobody responds the way the glycemic index says they should. Nobody. Mm. Um, and it's because it's all based on averages. But importantly, what they found is if you use this new science, you could literally create hyper-personalized like predictions about your health, about my health. And they now have like an app. I use it all the time. Like one of my favorite things that I tell people is, so I was always worried about diabetes and my nutritionist told me um, when I was a young adult that grapefruit is like almost a miracle thing. Like it's so good. And it turns out on average, it's true. <laughs> When I got my results back, it turns out that grapefruit is the single worst food I can possibly eat in terms of spiking my blood sugar. It actually elevates my blood sugar more than chocolate cake. Wow. And, you know, I took from that, I should have more chocolate cake. My wife told me that's not the right takeaway. But, um, <laughs> but for her, for example, it doesn't. It's great. And so what's really important here is what we've learned because mm. it matters, right? It, you mm. can't ignore it if you want to understand human beings. And importantly, with our technologies, we have the ability to scale that such that whereas we were relying on group averages to help create metabolic health and wellness was guaranteeing a lot of people would get diabetes, right? Now we can literally ensure optimal metabolic health at a population level by focusing on individuals. So, so that's the science I was a part of. I'm very grateful to have learned from one of the founders of that field and it's been really interesting to watch it take off everywhere. Um, I had written End of Average to try to summarize that new science for the general public because I felt like there were lessons for us to think about our own lives. And what I was seeing as a, as a professor with the people who wanted to know how to do this were largely the people in charge of big systems and social media companies and things like that. And I thought, that's great. You mean this but is in the, the science personalization. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, mm -hmm. and I was like, that's awesome. But what worried me is if, if everyday people don't have this knowledge, then these insights can be used to control you, right. More than empower mm. you. So that was the point of, of A la social dilemma. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and what's funny is at least in the old standardized way, when you were being controlled, you kind of knew it and then you could feel it, right? It's just brute force. The, the, the sort of nightmare scenario for me was that all of these technologies and systems start to know you better than you know yourself. 
And so they can control you in subtle ways and you will thank them for it. You'll call it personalization, but it's, so I, I felt like in order for in our understanding of individuality to be an empowering, like freeing kind of insight, right? That gives people greater self-determination. It wasn't enough just to embed it in our technologies. We had to get it to the people and change our mindset about how we see ourselves and each other. Yeah, pause. So the premise is that the individuals are changing, ever changing. And then I also read your academic papers in 2013. So it's based on pathways and context, right? So you're changing based on the pathway you take as well as the greater surrounding, the greater context. And therefore, there's no one size fits all to give people this experience of success and fulfillment. Is that uh, accurate statement? Absolutely. Cool. To get to Dark Horse. So yeah, yeah, in, in, in End of Average, I had, I had spent time profiling companies that had done a really good job of harnessing individuality, right? Some places I thought were pretty great. Um, and what I found when I was there is I kept running into like individual employees who were just amazing at what they did and seemed to just, I mean, just love the passion for their work. And they had these incredible backstories, just like, I'm like, how in the world did you end up here? Right. Like, um, and I had to put that on the side because I was finishing a book. Right. But so end of average became a bestseller. That was great. And then my former Dean, so this is so he said, well, what do you want to do next? And I said, you know, I'm actually really curious about these people that I ran into. Like, like how did they end up being so successful, but clearly didn't take the typical path. And I had assumed that um, somebody had studied that, right? And as I dug in, I just didn't find anything that was satisfactory. So we launched the Dark Horse Project at Harvard. And the idea was just, I just want to know, was there anything about these people that we could learn about? That, that, or was it like, they're just really just so idiosyncratic that there's no lesson to learn, right? So I wanted to find that out. And that's why we started the Dark Horse Project. Yeah, so Dark Horse, 2018. How has your thinking evolved since then? So, you know, the core insights from Dark Horse have held up really well. I, I feel very, very confident. Um, I often say this, like with my own children, if they would have asked me, should we follow your, my, like my personal advice? <laughs> I would have said, no, 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 it was too many lucky things. And like, it's not a reliable path. After like synthesizing insights from hundreds and hundreds of Dark Horses across all walks of life, those insights I feel like are absolutely reliable. And in fact, my own children follow them in the choices they're making. So that's held up. What's changed for me is I feel like um, one way to think about dark horses is it's about a quirky set of people or a small subset of people. What we've seen with the research we've done at Populous is this yearning for fulfillment, this yearning for purpose and passion has spread so wide. I can speak to the US because that's where we've done most of our research, that it is the dominant way that people privately think about the lives they want to live. So we're now sitting here in a society where most people want that, but they don't necessarily know how to get it. And our institutions and our culture are not really built to facilitate that. And so realizing this is less about some curious one-off, you know, dark horses and more about a complete transformation about the way we think about a successful life. Yeah. So... People say, I want a fulfilling life. It's a very rational response. But if you look at their behavior, 
and you wonder like, mm, you know, I'm not sure, right? Because you you say you wanted to lose weight as, as a generalized right. example, right? But yet yeah, you, yeah. you know donuts and you don't exercise. You watch Netflix all day. <laughs> so so so, I'm curious based on your research from all your data points, what kind of people desire what we're talking about here? You know, not just successful quote unquote from by societal <clears throat> standards, but actual fulfilling life that celebrates our individuality. Yep. So. Good question. And um, in 2019 at Populous, we did the largest survey ever using private opinion methods, which I can explain in just a sec, um, looking at the trade-off priorities people have for the life they want to live, right? And it we could, before we gave them this really complex instrument, um, we just asked them, you know, that kind of your, version of your question. And a lot of people say, of course, I want to fulfill Fulfillment's how I think about success. What's interesting is we give them trade-off scenarios to try to like tease out those trade-off priorities, not just do you want fulfillment, but really if I give you scenarios and you have to trade, you can't have everything. What are your priorities? And we use methods that are really, really well developed in business and other places. Like, like um, the same, it's called conjoint, like on an iPhone or something like, how do I get at the right combination of price point and features, right? If I just ask you, do you want more memory in your phone? Sure, right? <laughs> but but what are you willing to sacrifice for that, right? Are you Will you pay more for it? Will you give up a better screen? So we applied those same methods to the trade-off priorities we have for how we define success. What was so shocking is this idea of like purpose and fulfillment and like pursuing my own individuality in service of a greater contribution is the defining feature. Like there's no way to cut the data, no way to cut demographics, no way to cut uh, ideology for which a majority of people do not share that view. Um, so to your earlier question though, you say, okay, fine. So let's say we even believe them because it's private opinion and it's really hard to fake. Why is that not showing up as behavior? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, yep. and I think there are, there are three obstacles um, that we could talk about, right? The first is um, our institutions aren't really equipped for it. So it, it, it does take right now, right? I mean, you got people listening to you and following your guidance because it's not something that you are just going to um, be able to uh, slide into society and society's helping you figure this out. You're going to have to figure it out on your own right now until That's we right. get better at that. That's right. That's right. Related to that is is that we don't necessarily we don't know our own prior. I mean, we can think we know until we start making choices. And, you know, that, I mean, that's how we learn, right? Like you, 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 you think you want a fancy car, but then you go and spend all the money and you're like, actually, I liked the security that having money in the bank had, <laughs> right? Like, like, and that's good, right? Some of those things you just got to learn by making choices. Um, so, so that means we're, we're not always going to make the best choices. The third thing and the thing that we're really focused on now and is the point of my next book um, is this concept of a collective illusion. And it's, it's, it's this, and it, it's crazy. So I, you know, I, I was trained as a neuroscientist to begin with. And one of the things that is just so fascinating about human beings, and this won't be, this will be shocking to anyone listening. We're, we're, we love conformity. Our brains are wired to conform to our groups, right? Quite literally, I can put you in a scanner. And if, if I give you a task and I tell you that your opinion is with your group, it triggers a dopamine 
reward mm. response. Like mm. the same areas of the brain that hard drugs hit, right? If you find out you're at odds with your group, it can trigger an error signal, which is meant to correct your behavior. So mm. we, so this conformity bias we have, that's fine, except for it turns out our brains are spectacularly bad at estimating group consensus, <laughs> like so bad. Um, and the reason being is it, it takes a shortcut, which is your brain assumes the loudest voice repeated the most is the majority. Like you can see the problem. So what's happened in society today because of the effects of things like social media, which we can talk about, but like we are spectacularly wrong about what our groups actually think. And the reason this is important is that when we feel the need to belong, we end up behaving in ways that we think our group accepts rather than the things that we personally care about. And it happens all over the place. So if we come back to success, this is, this is no kidding because it's one of the biggest illusions we've ever found. Out of 76 trade-off priorities for a successful life, the number one thing people think most everybody else cares about is fame. Mm. They think that is the defining feature of success for most people, according to pe- <laughs> most people. Um, in private, it's actually dead last. 76 mm. out of 76. So again, here's the problem. I'm trying to live a life of fulfillment, purpose, but I'm convinced most everybody else cares about being famous, being this wealthiest person, you know, all these things. So what happens when I feel like I got a signal belonging. I make choices that are consistent with my group, not with myself. So these collective illusions are actually warping a lot of our behavior in ways that harm us personally, but also harm our groups because it's not what the group really wants. Let me just do a quick recap. So what you said, uh, why aren't they showing up in behavior? The first thing you said is institution not suited for it. There's no easy way for us Mm -hmm. to essentially discover this or slide into this, right? The second thing is we don't know our own priorities. And the third thing is, as you said, is the collective illusion. So, so there is the micro of the individual, mm-hmm. there's the system, systemic, and there's the ambient, there's the, the cultural, right? right? Exactly um, right. So, so the, the second point that you said about we don't know our priorities, um, let me push you on, on that just a bit. Let's say my choice of eating this donut or not depends on how hungry I am, let's say. Mm-hmm. So it's contextual. So right. I may at one point uh, hang out with friends or whatever, want this fancy car, but when I'm by myself, I just want to go to the Zen monastery, right? So what's your response to that? Because yeah, so, I'm so, saying is- so the three principles of individuality are that every one of us has what we call jagged profile. So we're, we're on the high end on some things. We're in the middle on others. We're on the low end on something like, so there's no, like, just like in body size, there's no size large. That's not how that works. Right. Like, and so relative. Yeah, it is. And so we, but the second principle is the context principle, which is that you cannot understand behavior or motivation or anything independent of the context in which somebody's operating, which includes other people. Um, And so to your point, right. um, It's, this is why like a lot of personality psychology, right? You're a big five. I'm a, I'm a type A person. It it turns out to be miserable at predicting behavior, like miserable because Mm. it's not true. It's like, it's your behavior varies pretty systematically in context. Right. And so what we see is that what the science talks about now is instead of sort of types of people hovering over all situations, we model what's called if then signatures. So 
we can get very good at predicting your behavior. If it's like, like, let's take about like, are you an extrovert or an introvert? It turns out that's not the right question, right? It might be with people you know really well, you're very extroverted. And with people you don't know, you become an introvert, right? Or whatever. And once I know that, that is very predictive. If I know that you are with people you don't know, I can predict with, with reasonable certainty that you will be introverted. You know, and so that same thing goes with our priorities. They certainly are contextualized, right? And what's interesting is once you get into the habit of knowing how to think about your own motives and your priorities and understanding and observing your own behavior in the very non-judgmental way, right? Like it's like, why did I make that decision, right? What do I learn from that? You'll get good at, at picking up these if-then signatures that help you understand your own contextualized motives and priorities. Yeah. I love it. I love that I'm speaking to a scientist where we can talk about data. There's also, um, lack of better words, quite, because I'm really into like meditation and spirituality, that kind of things. And, and in meditation, a huge part of meditation is you become the observed self. So you observe your thoughts, you observe your emotions. And at some point you realize like, hey, I am not my thoughts. I'm not my emotions, right? And then, then thus you then have cultivated this muscle of sovereignty i could choose at any given point to either turn up the thought or be the thought or be the emotion and so forth i don't know if there's any correlation in, in what you're hearing here but, well but that's was, that's kind of what comes to mind as you're speaking about that it was one of the most important things that i ever learned um and i had the great great honor of spending time with the dalai lama and we ended up getting locked together in dc over a lunch for four hours because someone called a bomb threat in. Oh, and it, was, awesome. it was just a few of us. And we just sat and talked about everything. And what a blessing. Oh it was so, I was so great. I've never seen anybody who ever embodied their beliefs more than, um, but one of the things I took from the conversations and, and was eye opening to me and it'll be obvious to you because I'm still a, a pretty novice at this, but like it never dawned on me that, the loop between my thoughts and my behavior, right? It feels continuous, right? It feels that they're my thoughts. I own them. And then there's just the behavior and learning to observe that. Number one, these thoughts just bubble up all the time, right? My choice is when I grab onto one, right? Not, not that mm -hmm. it, it came up, but even the fact that there is just this gap between the thought and the action. And in that space is my self-determination, right? My ability to decide my behavior off of that was transformative for me, right? It, it, it's, it's a small space, but it, for me, everything matters about that. Yeah. So since we're talking about that topic, might as well jump, go deeper into the rabbit hole, right? Uh, <laughs> Victor Frankl said the, the, there's a space between stimulus and response, and in that space lies our growth and our freedom, precisely what you're saying. To me, that spaciousness, that awareness is the micro, micro atomic habit discipline, that awareness to ultimately grow into the person that I want to be, the life I want to live, the, 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 the life of success and fulfillment. Right. I'm curious to know your thoughts if that, yeah, because you mean all the data they've done, all the research you've done, if you concur with that micro, micro habit. I do, because the thing is, is like, it's one thing to have the gap, right? As human beings, we're, we're blessed with that 
we break the bonds of stimulus response. We have the potential to, right? But if you don't understand how to make use of that in a purposeful way, and that and that understanding hasn't become these micro habits, right? Then it, I hate to say, I want to say we're no better than animals, but I mean, at the end of the day, you're wasting that gap, right? Um, and so cultivating the knowledge and skills and converting those into habits and micro habits, as you said, allows us to take full uh, advantage of that space that allows us the self-determination, right? To pursue a life of, of meaning and purpose and fulfillment on our own terms, which is really the only way you can ever get to a life of fulfillment and excellence. So as a systems thinker, as a society architect, right, you have a think tank to really do this. If you agree with that, then is the, I guess, the first domino to make systemic change starting there? Like what are some of the, I'm kind of jumping in a bit, but mm -hmm. you know, what do you think is the, you know, with, with yeah. the aspiration of making systemic change, where do you then start? So actually, it's funny because you swerve right into like the reason I left Harvard, which I, I love the people I work with. And that was, you know, big part of my identity. And that was hard. But I get to do exactly only the things I want to do here at Populous, which is amazing. But it is the reason we exist is there is the possibility for right now we structure our society assuming it's zero sum in so many ways that, that your success has to come at my expense. It's just not true, right? It, it's like demonstrably false um, and that societies can be structured to be materially and spiritually positive sum, right? Such that, that we actually do care about each other's outcomes and opportunities because we all benefit. Um, and so we exist to create those systems and cultural conditions. And so a lot of that involves... Uh, the transformation of our institutions. And we, you know, like you said, I have a background in, in complex systems and like, we know how to do that. It's hard, but we know how to do that. Um, for us, it's, it's two things simultaneously. There are things we can do about with respect to our institutions that facilitate this kind of thing we're talking about, right? Make it so much easier. So let's take one example, like education. Its purpose is fundamentally wrong, fundamentally wrong. Like, right, it, it, the system we have was never built, ever built, was never meant to develop autonomy, agency, purpose, meaning it's not even meant to develop anything. It is meant to batch process and sort. And I don't mean that as bad as it sounds. It sounds awful now because it is awful, but that was the industrial model, right? And the assumptions behind it were that very few people had talent, right? And that we could give everyone the same experience and sort the best from the rest. And that was great. Okay, fine. Those assumptions turned out to be wrong, like demonstrably false. But right now, our children go into schools that teach them to see themselves in this standardized way, which actually makes it significantly harder for them to engage in the kind of things we're talking about, right? So there are things we can do and need to do about our institutions. But at the end of the day, you're not getting the transformation of society simply by changing institutions, right? If, if we don't go direct to the individual, if we don't equip them with the knowledge and skills to do this in their own lives, you're not going to get culture change and you're not going to get broad systems transformation. So the things you're doing, not to, not to just compliment you because we're here, but you know, it really matters. It matters. And 
and a good example is worth all the words we can we can speak today, right? So so someone who internalizes what you're what you're sharing with them and goes and puts it to work in their life. It benefits them, but it also benefits everybody around them because they see a model, right? They see it working. Um, so I think at the end of the day, there's really no way around like getting to the conversations with each other as as human beings and equipping each other with the skills and knowledge we need to pursue fulfillment and make our best contribution. Thanks for that answer. Thanks for the compliment. And back to you. I mean, we are we're very much aligned. Absolutely. So so Human beings, we we're social animals. We like to look at successful examples, hence why we love gurus, we love teachers, we love celebrities. Celebrities somehow has gotten to like the highest echelon of like our society today. We're social animals. Great. Yep. So are there great examples of dark forces? Who do you think in your minds are exemplary since you've done extensive study on this? Yeah, it's it's so funny, right? Um so I've learned a couple of things from, from spending a lot of time focused on this topic. And I've been fortunate to, and I don't mean to sound like a jerk or, or, or like, like, like praising myself. I'm, I'm fortunate to know a lot of reasonably famous people and, and successful people. And number one, uh, wildly disappointing in so many ways, right? Like, like this idea of like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, and what I say that only because with the dark horse project, we intentionally decided we weren't going to study famous people because I felt like if there was going to be anything to learn, learning from someone who has more money than God or is famous. And just, it's like, is that why, like, like, but what about the, like me, I thought about me growing up in rural America with no money and very limited opportunities. Like, the insight that if you have a billion dollars, then this is all available to you is not very good uh, information. Um, and so what I have found is, so even the most famous people I know, who we all know people who are objectively successful, so to speak, and miserable, right? Well, listen, don't emulate that, right? Like that is, there's nothing there. But when you find the people who are objectively successful, and like happy and 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 just living life's a purpose like what you see consistently is they do a lot about what we're talking about like they got to where they got to because they figured out who they are and what they care about and they learned how to turn that into a contribution right um and what i love about it is the people that inspire me the most when it's all said and done are i've met so many people on this journey that are just everyday people living lives of excellence and, and purpose. And what's funny is once you get out of the trap of seeing excellence through this standardized lens, right? Like this pyramid where it's like, there's only a few people that can be it. You realize seeing people doing things that they are deeply passionate about is nothing is more inspiring to me. Nothing. I am such a sucker for those stories. Right. And what I've learned with the dark horse project is I prejudged so many of them before this based on what it was they are doing because in so many ways i'd be like i can't imagine why anyone would care about doing that and so i didn't even i stopped there right so unless you were doing what we all think we all should be doing we just write you off but when you realize what we want is to see excellence we want to see people mm. who are passionate and excellent mm. at what they do 
then the, the aperture opens and you can see there's so many people living really incredible lives and there's there's such an inspiration and what i love about that is when you when you free yourself from this comparative mindset right that you're seeing the world through lens of i'm i'm good because you're worse than i am right <laughs> it, it it frees you to stop it, it frees you when you see excellence and passion instead of see the, the 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 emotion being envy right it's it is one of they make me want to be a better version of myself right and i love that and i think that it's when we get to that place where we are social creatures but that does not mean that it has to be comparative and it has to be like me versus you. We can use our social nature to lift each other up and, and, and benefit from each other's successes. Yeah, absolutely. One of the very selfish or self-serving purpose of doing Noble Warrior is I enjoy engaging with, you know, uh, deeply re reflective people, like passionate people, uh, as you're speaking, one quote came to my um, hedge fund manager, Jun Yoon. He said, tell me, tell me your passion. Allow me to see the world through your eyes. Because from that, the world is much richer and more abundant through that lens of passion. So that's yeah. a very self-serving reason why I do Noble Warrior. Isn't it great? And it's like, don't, don't you come away from all of this, like, Number one, I, I have such a brighter view of humanity from this these kind of engagements. And you start to realize that human distinctiveness is not in contrast to our shared humanity, right? It, it is not something that has to work in antagonism, right? That it's it's something we actually share and it, it, it's part of our journey and part of our fulfillment and part of our contribution to one another. Mm. So as a father... And also as a public intellect, right? As a teacher, uh, many source people look at you and then they want to learn from you, right? How do you encourage people to embrace um, the dark horse model, right? This, this, this idea of embrace individuality, embrace who you are, embrace what you want, because there's only one of you in all of creation ever, ever, ever embrace that. How do you, and then, and then, and then the greater environment where it's like, no standardized success, you know, fame and fortune and societal approval is what you need. So how do you uh, gently or not so gently enroll your kids, yeah. people who look up to you to <laughs> let go of this standardized version for the dark horse model? It's hard. It's hard. Look, I, I mean, my entire professional life has been about understanding individuality about channeling that in things everything to success to like studying cancer or, or learning and yet I'll, I'll tell you a personal story so both my kids are older because we got married when we were 19 <laughs> so so like my wife and I so um it's it's been so fun to watch them you know make choices in life but we grew up in Cambridge Massachusetts and I've never seen anything like my kids did the pressure towards standardized success, particularly with respect to college, you know, like for me, where I grew up, it was like, Oh, you're gonna go to college. Okay. Well, there's one up the road. Right. And you're like, wow, look, I went to college. Right. No, no, no. Here it was like, right. But what college the game has changed. To? Oh my no God. No longer the local college. You got to so go to Harvard. Oh, and just, 
trust me, man. Like it's, it's great, but it's not, there's plenty of great places. Um, But what's interesting is with my oldest son, we watched his effort. He did so well in school. um, But the process of succumbing to the idea that you've got to go to the best school as everybody else decides, right? Like not has nothing to do with whether it's good for you. And what that took in the standardized path of success, he's such a good kid, but we felt like it was making him selfish. Like even coming down to like, oh, should I choose this uh, volunteer experience? This one? Well, this one will look better on my resume. Like, what? That's not how you choose how to serve other people, right? Like, and then I remember he um, thought about taking, I believe it was a French literature class. And he said, well, I don't know if I like it. I, I think I do. I frankly, I think it was for a girl, but like, um, you know, he said, well, if I don't do well, he was a physics and math major. If I don't do well, it would harm my chances of getting into the best college. And I was like, actually, that's probably true. And that's really terrible. Right. So we actually, he, he, he applies, he gets into all these great schools, but we convinced him to take a gap year. And he said like, go work and go serve. So he went to work, um, at, at a place where as an basically an, an intern around computer science, which he had no background in, and then went and taught English for free uh, in Morocco. And he mm. came back a completely different person, much more centered on who he was. And it turned out computer science was his passion. He had no idea. And now he is a top flight cybersecurity expert. Um, and my, but, but, but the better story is, is his brother, two years younger. So, Dark Horse comes out. I'm very proud of it. You know, because, you know, bestseller. And I'm out there giving everybody advice, right? Because <laughs> there's no getting around the fact that if you write a book like that, you are telling people how to live their life, even though I, I don't think of it that way. But like, you know, here I am. And I am like on the road and I get a text from my son. And he says, when you get home, we need to talk. Mm. And I was like, uh-oh. Like, you know. <laughs> I have my mind's racing like what could this mean because we yeah. so I get home and he has a copy of Dark Horse and it's dog-eared and it's got sticky notes hanging out of it and it's highlighted it and he says I think I need to make a change in my life mm. and he had kept pursuing the standardized covenant even though we had told him he didn't have to went all the way through college was about to graduate with his degree in mechanical engineering and he was miserable and he said, but I don't think I can make a different choice because you've spent, we've spent so much money on my education. <laughs> it's like, if, wait, so because it's like sunk cost, right? Like we've already spent that money. That does not mean you are condemned to a life with a lack of fulfillment as sunk a result. Cost is right? one of the uh, collective illusions for sure. Absolutely. And so, mm-hmm. so, but, but in true dark horse fashion, it's not enough just to fall your bliss off a cliff. That's not the advice. What I'm looking for is that you are willing to take responsibility for your choices. And then I'll be there every step of the way. So we build a plan of the kind of things that he's passionate about, wants to explore. And he stripped down his life in terms of his expenditures to be able to do that. And he contributes and it's been amazing to watch. And so it, but I will say my, my initial reaction when he was like, I want to pursue this dark horse thing. I, I almost felt like saying, Oh, no, no, no. That's for other people's kids. <laughs> you just go get a job. It'll be fine. <laughs> the, so impulse, I, the impulse. Yeah, is still there. It's, it's yeah. hard, right? It's hard. Yeah. But then you're like, no, 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 no. Listen, 
if it's good enough for everybody else, it's good enough for my kid. It's good enough for me. Um, and, but, but I say that just because even as somebody who literally wrote the book on it, it's hard for the people around you. And so I think for me, besides sharing the insights, the most important thing you can do is embody the mindset in your own life, right? Because especially for people who look up to you, your own children, um, um, your, your friends, your family, they're paying more attention to your life than you realize. They're paying more attention to how you live and the choices you make than you, you think. And so that being an example is probably the most important thing anybody could do right now. Mm, thanks for sharing that. Um, well, let's, let's go into that, what you just said. We do live in a world of 3D reality. So in my mind, it's a constant choice we're making. It's not, oh, when I was 25, I made a choice going from first mountain to second mountain. No, it's, it's always happening, right? Because there are always external pressures, internal pressures everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's a constant choice that we're making. So going into that, what do you say for people who are still holding on to, oh, well, I need to be responsible, but I do aspire what to what Todd is saying, right? To live a life of fulfillment. So practically, tactically, do you have any suggestions for people who is actively seeking to make that transition? Absolutely. Like, and we can talk about a few of them here because l l listen, I get it. Like, it can feel like fulfillment is something you should only be able to pursue once you've figured everything else out or it's a, it's a rich person's game or That's right. whatever. Maslow's hierarchy of needs once I hit these levels and yeah. finally. And, and by the way, as someone who's read everything Maslow's ever written, he uh -huh. never said you had to get it in sequence. In fact, he disagreed with that. He thought self-actualization was something that was available every step of the way. And it was about the day-to-day mm -hmm. -day choices you make. Isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. Like we tend to mm -hmm. think like he, he never said it. Like, it's, it's, so we've just interpreted the, the hierarchy in terms of like, first I have to do this, then I have to do this. And so we mm. leave fulfillment and self-actualization, I guess what, for our retirement, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but, and I also get, look, again, like I have been there and I don't mean to, to glorify it, but I promise you, most people in this were never as poor as I was. I mean, we were on welfare. I was working minimum wage jobs. And it's about as bleak as it gets. Like, it's just, how do you get out of that, right? And so if you think about fulfillment, as you said earlier, it's not about one life decision. I mean, some choices have more like consequences than others. It's about, especially with the dark horses, they were so phenomenally good at making day-to-day -day choices. They don't always make the right choice, but they learn quick. And so there's a couple of things that um, I think, let's talk about the, cho the choice aspect. Mm -hmm. So, because I look, the, the opposite of responsible isn't being a dark horse. It's not that you are abandoning responsible choices. In fact, responsibility was part of the heartbeat of dark horse mindset, right? Your fulfillment can't come at other people's expenses, right? There, so, you know, there's a lot of things that I would do if I just let everybody else foot the bill, right? But um, so what I think was, is really important is we tend to think of choices as the big monumental ones, but as you said, it's the day-to-day -day choices all the time. And you always have a choice. I'm sorry, there, it may, you may not have every choice, but you always have a choice. And the choices are almost never equivalent in terms of their potential for fulfillment, right? 
And so recognizing what you're trying to do is chain together a series of small choices that ladder up to fulfillment and purpose. And then you realize we all have that path available. And so recognizing and, and valuing the fact that you have choice and seeking it out and, and don't letting it pass. We tend to like hoard our choices because we're so afraid of making them. It's like, preserve what, is, what does that mean? Hoard our choices. What does that so, mean? So it's, we'll hesitate to make the choice because we want to preserve the escape route. We want to preserve. It's like, as soon as I decide, let's just pretend as soon as I decide I'm going to go to LA because I want to be an actor, well, shoot all this other stuff, you know, but as long as I stay in the state of not having made a choice, everything is in theory open to me. And isn't that better? And so we end up stalling out and we can come up with a million excuses why I can't make a choice right now. Right. But, but here's, here's the thing from the dark horse research that I thought personally was one of the most insightful things that we learned. Obviously what you're going for is a decision, a choice for which there is the best fit between the, the choice itself, the, the, the thing it'll take you on and who you are as an individual, especially your motivations. But back to the responsibility part, there's some choices that might be really, really optimally a good fit for you but for which you really can't make, right? You can't, and that's okay. So this is how they made decisions. I thought was so great. Of all the choices you have, which is the one that is the best fit to your, your individuality? And then here's the follow-up question that everybody should ask themselves. Can I live with the worst case scenario if I make this choice? And if you think about it, like I had two kids, I still do have two kids, but they were young. That constrains. It doesn't matter if going to LA, I want to be an actor, going to LA and giving it all up and like this. Well, if I have kids to take care of, I have some minimal set of obligation. So I can't just go like, like I have to make a living. Fine. That's not a choice I'm willing to make. So go to the next one that and find the one that optimizes fit to you and that you can live with the worst case scenario. And it's so freeing because once you realize that the worst thing that can happen to you, you could live with, the fear stays behind, right? And you get better and better at leaving a, a, a more fearless life, which is really critical to all this. Mm, so I so, love that. Mm. Yeah. So that's a that's a be mm. aware of your choices and make them. And look, you gotta make them. Like there's no path to 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 self-actualization, fulfillment, excellence, where you're just stalled, right? Better to make a choice and when it, and and when it's not working you learn from it and you move on right and so there's this and then the last thing i'll say that anybody can do right now um you know as i wrote about in in the in dark horse there's a handful of things that that you need to know to really make this uh a reliable path to to success but the starting point is something that we rarely teach people but is so important which is understanding your own motivations and we called them micro motives because we were so shocked at how individual they are. Just like the things that truly get you out of bed. We tend to think they all consolidate around a few big things, right? Just isn't true. Um, and so like there are ways to pretty quickly start to get a handle on your own micro motives without making massive choices. Uh, and, and like one easy thing you can do right now, and, and we even have parents doing it with young kids, Think about the things that you are passionate about, like right this second. I don't care what it is. 
And then there's a follow-up question you have to ask yourself, which is, why are you passionate about it? And, and, and here, let me give you an example. I love football. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Like it is, but there are almost an infinite number of combinations of motivations for why someone could care about football, right? So passion is when your motivations align with your activities. But what happens if I don't know why, because is it because I like competition? Is it I like strategy and team sport? Do I just like being outdoors? So grading some hypothesis for yourself about, oh, I know why I like football is really important because those are your motives. Whereas I can't play football right now. Like I'm just, I'm only 47, but obviously that's not really a path. So am I stuck? Do I have to go through a midlife crisis because I can't do the thing I was passionate about? No, if I understand my micro motives, I can find other things that check those same boxes and will be equally as fulfilling. And you'll be shocked at how empowering that knowledge really is. Yeah. In my mind, Sometimes you like things just because you like them. You don't even need to explain why, right? But from this discussion or the journaling or or the self-reflection or the inspection, we get to tease out, right? That space, you know, in our mind, that's like a gestalt feeling. Like, I don't know why I like it, but let's try to figure out what that is, right? And, And as you said, and you don't necessarily need to do the mechanism. The mechanism is just a proxy to the end experience that you want so let's say if your body isn't able to do the football then you can go directly after you just swap out the mechanism essentially is what you're saying yes exactly exactly and by the Mm way the it works the other way too so many times we judge other people we see them doing work that we think who would ever want to do that we just and once you realize that judgment is not about them it's about you And, and that's okay right what is it about their life that you don't like? What is it about the job they're doing that you can't even imagine? And if you see that as an opportunity to learn more about your own motives, rather than making some value judgment about them as, as, as individuals, it becomes quite useful, right? So we can learn from ourselves and our own experiences. We can learn from other people and our reaction to them, you know, and, mm. and, you know, it's what's, what's so interesting is you do that and you get better and better at making decisions and suddenly this temptation to pursue the things other people care about starts to dwindle because nothing beats success. Nothing beats the feeling of making a choice that to everybody else seems like, why are you doing this? But for you, it checks the boxes and it is the best possible decision. And like the problem is, is we can't get to that place of like, what's a good choice for you is almost never one that is good on average. <laughs> like it's just... So like, it's funny, even the way we think about risk is wrong, right? So when we think about risk, like, should I go to, uh, I want to be a, I don't know, computer scientist, I want to work at Google. Well, the percentage of people who are going to get to do that is pretty slim. So the risk seems kind of high to make that choice, but that's not right. That's like the risk across everybody, right? What you need to know is, is this aligned to who I am and my motives? And do I understand the choices I need to make and the strategies I'll pursue, right? And then you realize actually the risk is significantly lower, right? It's just the wrong way to think about risk. And so it's once you get the habit of that, you, you'll gain the confidence to make decisions based on who you are and stop relying on like basically socializing the risk. Like, well, if everybody thinks it's risky, I'm not going to do it, right? There's safety in that in the sense, but it's, 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 
it's it's a fault safety, right? And you'll pay for it in terms of fulfillment and success in the long run. Yeah, for sure. I want to make a slight comment about um, the journey from finding this this micro motives, and then we can go into more like decision matrix and all these other things. Okay, so remind me later if I don't come back to the decision matrix because I think that's super important. However, I think everything starts from this yearning, this urge, this curiosity, right? And it's in my mind, you pull on the thread of curiosity. I don't really know why I'm compelled to have a conversation with Todd, but let's just try, right? Let's just do that. And then it's like, oh, he's very interesting. So go from curiosity to interest, to passion, to perhaps all the way, like this burning fire of like mm -hmm. devotion. I'm willing to sacrifice many, many things to do X, right? So to me, it's a journey of pulling in that thread of curiosity. So Todd, curious to know personal practice as well as seeing all these dark horses. How do they, how do you find this intuitive inkling that's very very esoteric that only you can hear yeah your point about the the journey is important and the curiosity in particular because curiosity by definition is interest in the unknown right interest in the uncertain it's not i'm not curious about watching the patriots play football I know that I care about it, right? It's, it's, it's about as close to stimulus response now as you could get, right? So I, I understand that. Curiosity is the idea, the inkling that, that there is something new that I don't understand that may actually be important to me, right? And so this is where that, that the fear part about it is so toxic, right? Because we know at a neuroscience level that when you are in a fear orientation, curiosity is dramatically diminished, right? You have uh, a, a avoidance behavior because look, the truth is, is things that are unknown are either phenomenally valuable for learning for you, right? Or they can kill you. So at, at the level of your brain, every time you, you, you engage in something that, that triggers by that's triggered by curiosity, it, it actually simultaneously tees up a threat response, right? Because you got to be ready. If this thing is actually bad for you, you've got to be able to get out, right? And also an anticipated reward response. And so this learning to lean into the curiosity and creating situations that make it safe to do that, right, um, is like so critical because otherwise you're stuck with a journey that is limited by the starting points that you could absolutely confirm right now. And it's just never going to be good enough, right? But the, the, the sort of journey from that, from curiosity to how I see it as like discovering your underlying motives and your passion and turning that into purpose and contribution, like this, this is everything. And, and I just, I'll just circle back and say, I think it's so critical again that you brought up the idea of curiosity because often when people talk about this journey, they leave that starting point out, right? And it's almost like I've got my little script and I'm going to learn how to do that and um, the last thing I'll say on this journey, and it may be apocryphal, but I'm pretty sure it's true. And I, I'm pretty sure I know who said it, but I, <laughs> I won't, I won't name it. So I don't look like I'm, a, you know, I still have some reputation to, to deserve, <laughs> but it's been important to me. Um, and th this idea of where the idea of burning desire came from, right? Because you might think of it as like something you feel, right? I have a burning desire. I feel it inside. Probably true. But the story that I was told 
was that it actually comes from the Vikings, right? Mm. Which is when they would go to another country, you burn your ships. So there's mm. no retreat. You are either going to succeed or you are going to fail. And the idea is good luck competing with somebody who has burnt their ships, right? So this is what I mean when I was thinking about you hold on to these choices and you don't make them. You learn how to make those decisions and then you got to make them. And every time you give yourself an out, you give yourself a reason to do to put anything less than 100% into the thing you're going to do. And there's always a reason to quit, right? Always a reason to fall back to the standardization covenant and follow someone else's path. So learning how to make choices and committing to those choices is critical. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with this whole new category of software called personal knowledge management, personal knowledge management software, right? So I'm a huge fan of Rome research. It's a great note-taking tools. In my mind, I'm also using it as a way to excavate going deeper into the depth of my subconsciousness because yeah. I can just keep going deeper and deeper. And it's a way for me to uh, effectively track what's happening in my mind because my mind is a cluster of, you know, stream yeah. of consciousness is very, very difficult to make any kind of important decisions if I don't unpack them and look at them, you know, on, on paper. So I'm curious to know what's your opinion about this type of software or Rome research specifically about fostering one's ability to live this dark horse lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So I look, I think it's really important. And the, the only caveat is, and I fall for this myself, is when when sometimes that kind of stuff, the discovery thing itself can be so cool that you just do it. And so it's like, it almost becomes its own reason. As long as we don't lose sight of the fact that the reason we're trying to discover these insights to, is so that it allows us to make better choices on our own behalf in real life, right? Just like when I, like, I'm like a hyper organized person and I use getting things done and things. And so it's, and if you're not careful, it just becomes its own. Like I checked a box on getting something done. You're like, right. But there's a reason you're doing this. Um, here's why this is a really important insight. It comes for me, it comes down to particularly learning about why you're making choices or what you're thinking about, what you care about, but any one choice you make, it's very hard, especially when they don't work out it's hard to know why it didn't work out or even why it did work out. Right. So like, for example, if I engage with another person and it just is with just does go South, is it because the way I was behaving? Is it because of the way they were behaving? Like, and so it's easy to project. It's easy to blame. What I found is the most reliable insights about yourself are the ones you discover from repeated patterns. Right. So it turns out anyone could be any reason, but when you start seeing it show up, you know, three, four or five times, it's a pretty reliable indicator. This is something important for you. So the thing is, is without some sort of technological assistance there, it's deeply difficult to ever really extract those patterns about yourself. So I, I actually do think that this kind of approach is going to be instrumental um, if we're ever going to scale this way of thinking about our lives. Well, I know you did uh, some machine learning to help hu humans make better decisions, right? So let's fast forward to that. That's part of my fantasy is, hey, it's really difficult to track streams of consciousness, what's happening yeah. in my life, the internal 
uh, decision-making mechanism, what's important for me, what's not important for me, my lessons of my failures, my lessons of my success, all these things. It's just streams of consciousness. So my attempt uh, in doing Rome and, and using, you know, very intricate systems like GGD or uh, Zerocastan or things like that is our attempt to capture these buckets. So in my mind, I fantasize that, hey, there is a platform that help us keep track of this data and make sense of it and point out patterns that we may not necessarily capture and yeah. also in reference to the external world because the yeah. world is going even faster, right? The, geo the geopolitical, the Twitter, NFTs, whatever the new technology is coming up, it's very, very difficult to even navigate with intentional <laughs> efforts. So, yeah. Or looking, I, I, what, what's your thought on the possibility so, of navigating with I, that? I, I'm there with you. And look, if I were king for a day, this is what the technology would be. We need an intermediate layer between us and our digital systems, right? And think about it as almost your own avatar. Its job is to do nothing but represent you and feed back to you, right? These are, Because... Think about the problem with, with AI and machine learning in general, right? You have two choices in terms of how you get these to be highly personalized and predictive. You can start with smart, what we might call smart algorithms that make a ton of assumptions. The truth is that's just statistics, right? And, and given the science of individuality, it will almost guaranteed not actually be about you and it will end up being a corrupting influence. It will be the thing that distorts your choices into stereotypical choices, right? About people like you. The alternative is dumb algorithms that need a ton of data, right? To get smarter over time. Well, if, if you can actually have this middle layer that interfaces across all aspects of your life, well, now we're talking, right? If it can pull in data from Google and data from Facebook and data from your shopping habits, like, and it's about you, then now we can use your behavioral data, your like psychographic data, whatever it is we're looking at to discover patterns that are applicable to you, even if they are not applicable to anybody else. That becomes really interesting to me, right? That becomes technology in service of true empowerment. Um, and now we just got to figure out then how do you monetize it so someone will actually build it? <laughs> well, I mean, okay. So that I think that may be a good segue into this, right? Because in my mind, um, what is success? In my mind, my, my definition of micro motives is equivalent to micro desires, right? Mm -hmm. So success is the fulfillment of our desires, right? So that's, that's my definition of success. My definition of fulfillment is, well, being content with reality as it is without actually needing to fulfill my desires. So curious to know your uh, definition it's, of success and fulfillment. It's so funny. So I would push on the idea that the contentment, so like, it's tricky, right? So I think of fulfillment as fundamentally like the ability to achieve and contribute based on your own private values and priorities, right? So, and, and how would I know that if I don't understand my desires, right? That, that's that's, that's the, the core of all this. But if I can't turn those desires into achievement and contribution, then they're just latent, right? They don't mean anything. But I, I, to your point, right, like if you're not careful, if you don't understand the concept of enough, then this pursuit of more 
ends up cannibalizing whatever it is you actually accomplished, right? The, the number of, the thing that I've always been finding, and maybe I just don't know enough people, but I thought growing up poor, so I grow up poor, I just obsess about money, right? <laughs> like if you don't have it, it's like, wow. I sort of assumed that when I started to get to know really rich people, they would recognize they have more money. They could live a million lives and not run out of money. But at least the people I know, they tend to be even more obsessed about it. And so I'm surprised by it. And then you realize, because there's, if, if the way you got there is comparative, there's always somebody, always somebody else, right? And the way it leads people to make choices, right? I, like, I, I forgot his name, but the story of the, this guy who, who had made like about $200 million. I just read about it like a couple of weeks ago. And, um, but he started to rub, he came from nothing starts to rub shoulders with billionaires. He's on the board of like one of the major banks and decides he wants to be a billionaire and then ends up making like illegal insider trading moves and so on, and ends up in jail and loses everything. And you're like, yeah, this concept of enough needs to factor in, right? Like you had a good life. So I think that there is this tension between like if contentment without achievement is like, you can have a good life, just lower your expectations for yourself, right? Like we can revise our expectations so low that, that it's like, I mean, just learn to, learn to live with the thing you have. Achievement without contentment is insatiable, right? And, and so I think that finding that balance is the key in sort of my view of success. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, even that question alone is lifetimes of discussion yeah. right so we're not gonna solve it in, in this podcast per se but okay so let's talk about decisions because in my mind how we make decisions ultimately is how we translate from an intention to right. 3d reality right so like our life is a collection of decisions that we make so quote unquote monetization i would say you know it, rather than thinking about monetization i think like utility right like usefulness mm -hmm. So if there's a way to help people make better and better decisions towards the life that they desire, I think it's highly valuable. Thoughts yeah. on that? Oh, absolutely. Right. Like I was thinking more just crass, like, like how do we get it to everybody? And, you know, uh, you either have a philanthropic route, which I, I'm a little dubious about, or you have a free market route, in which case somebody's going to have to make a little bit of profit. <laughs> so, but look, the truth is, is like, even in that space, we live in a world where it's pretty shocking what we take for granted is given to us for free because someone has figured out a way to still make money. You know what I mean? It's like, so to your point, if you start with utility, utilization, if it adds real value to people's lives, there's, there's a way. Well, this, is, this, this may be slightly esoteric, but I wanted to ask. So the standardized model, right? The mm -hmm. standardized common a covenant is hard for me to say. And, and, and then let's assume that's one end of the spectrum, right? Yep. And the dark horse uh, covenant is, is the other. So when is, is there any like rule of thumb to assess when is appropriate to pursue the standardized model or when is appropriate yeah. to pursue the yeah. dark horse model? Whenever that standardized model aligns with your private motives and, and, and opportunities, like there, there's, there's nothing de facto wrong with the model right? It's just we've stitched it together and assumed that it applies equally to everyone at every step of the way. I don't like it when people think that the dark horse thing means we reject the standard and that makes us a dark horse. It does not, 
right? It might make you stupid if you're not careful, right? Like, like you have a, it's about making choices, not in reference to other people, but in reference to yourself, right? And that can include your responsibilities and things like that. So provided to me, it's about how the choice was made, not whether it was part of the standardized covenant or not, right? Um, and I know plenty of people who tread the standardized path a good chunk of their lives and are very happy and, and fulfilled. So it's, it's, I would say, ignore all that, get good at knowing who you are and get good at how you make decisions and the rest will follow. And you just don't have to think about whether it's a standardized choice or not. So as a scientist or, or a former academic and speaking to another former academic, I love mental models. I love data-driven decisions. I love asking why, self-reflective and otherwise. So in my mind, the dream is to essentially have, have a thesis, right? And then you just, you know, have mini experiments throughout. And then you go conversion more and more into your, 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 your thesis of what it means to live a successful and fulfilling life. Do you have something like that where you have like this grand thesis of what it is and you just run mini experiments for yourself, yeah. for your kids, for your family, for your business and so forth so you can have yeah, this I mean, that, lifestyle? Exactly. So so I actually think of that as like the choice my, my business partner and I made to start Populous. And I mean, it's rooted in a mental model that makes some pretty sweeping assumptions about like society. And then what you do is you systematically test those components of it and you revise and um but that i don't think there's a more profound worldview decision to make than whether or not you think things are zero sum like is it just the case that there's not enough opportunity to go around there's not enough resources there's not enough whatever and so therefore we really are playing a game of musical chairs because if that's true then you might want to be as ruthlessly cutthroat and you might want to realize that like actually it's a fool's game to care about anybody else it's a fool's game to like invest in other people but if it's not true then we are literally holding ourselves back we are condemning ourselves individually and collectively to impoverished lives right and i think for for me on that side of it, you think about like free markets properly structured, not that I'm a reformed academic. So this is why I get to talk to you about this, but like up until Adam Smith, the, the prevailing model was mercantilism, which assumed economies were zero sum. And the world was unbelievably poor as a result. And it, we have arguably created more material abundance in the last 240 years than in human history before it. Right. And what we have not figured out, the leap we have not made is that, just, now we accept that we can have material abundance by getting the conditions right. The psychological abundance, the spiritual abundance, we still act as though it's zero sum. I mean, you think about it, and, and I don't mean to bag on my former employer because there's a lot of great people, but think about higher education. Quality equals scarcity. I mean, like how absurd it is. It is not about how many people can we educate to put into the world living great lives and making contributions as it should be in any other sector, right? It is literally like how few people can we let in? <clears throat> That's not a good place to be, right? Um, I'll, I'll tell you uh, one of the things we've been testing just, in the, just to close the loop on this. Um, if you follow the assumptions of positive sum systems to their logical conclusion, including 
the dignity and worth of every person, their ability to contribute something, and uh, this to be able to create a multiplying effect. It has implications in my mind all the way down to how we deal with things like poverty, right? Like it's unacceptable for people to be in a state of need if what you need them to do is be able to pursue fulfillment to make their best contribution. So we've been working with um, our colleagues doing uh, in their efforts to do some pretty interesting experiments around cash transfers for poor people. It is shocking. Like, and, and you don't have to just assume, of course, that we're giving people the ability to make choices because we're back to what you and I have been talking about. I mean, choice is the heartbeat of all of this, right? If you don't have choices, what do you have? And so looking at ways to say, like, if we actually empower people facing poverty, not just with resources so they don't starve, but with cash to be able to make their own choices, is that better? And I always, I assumed it would be, but like, let's make it an appropriate question and test it. So, so okay. So, so the result? Yeah, yeah. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Like, I, I can't believe. So in this particular uh, uh, study that was actually done by my colleagues at the Shaw Foundation, it was their baby. I mean, we, I just get to piggyback on it and learn from it. Cash transfers to people during the pandemic, the poorest people, ends up spend it however you want, right? And they use debit cards so you could at least, not tied to the uh, person, but at least you could see, like, how do they spend it? Something like less than 1% of it was spent on alcohol and tobacco. Something like 70% of it was spent in, in the local community, supporting sports. And like the, the, ability that, the, the ability for that, that sense that I am being invested and entrusted to make choices for myself, and the way that spreads in terms of building social trust within the community, it's pretty remarkable. Um, mm. and, and, and so like these mental models are important and it's important to test them. And I just, for me, I'm just like, wow, just like, just like before we realized you could have free, free markets properly regulated. I'm not saying I'm not talking about And you could trade and, you know, right now China making, raising its people out of poverty. It's not coming at our expense. That's ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous. We're all better off. So I think we have to take that same mental model of abundance and apply it to the psychological side, the spiritual side, and realize that happiness is not a fixed pie. Flourishing is not a fixed pie. And if we get the conditions right, we can all live more richer and fuller lives. Yeah. So with new technology, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, right? trustless quote-unquote trustless systems in my mind as you're speaking about the cash transfer thing i thought this new rise of cryptocurrency and technologies is perfect for something because it's perfectly trackable it's yep. public on the everything transact every transaction is public on the blockchain you can actually do some serious anthropological studies on what we're talking about here have you Absolutely. like thought of have you guys yep. thought about that is yep. this something is this something you're excited for oh or, absolutely are you kidding me this is great because to me um the the threat to self-determination and i mean that as in the, in this path of of fulfillment and trusting people to be able to make decisions in their own lives we just have a tendency to love to control other people's lives <laughs> like we just and 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 the more we centralize things and standardize things, the more power we put into a few people's hands to determine the lives of way too many people. And, you know, let's just take something like, I, I actually think cryptocurrency is, 
has the potential. I think right now it's a lot of Ponzi schemes, to be perfectly honest. But, you know, like, what do you do? Um, I think that this kind of future for currency is critical to being able to, like, our, like right now, fiat currency destroys wealth. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like, you cannot just print money and then think there are consequences. So the ability to say, listen, we're going to have, like, a cryptocurrency that, that you can't just the powers that be can't just say, you know what, my pet thing is this, I'm literally going to like print money and, and, and then all of a sudden you get runaway inflation. You know what I mean? Like it's going to, it's, it's going to be important. And I think that these trustless systems in a weird way promote trust. <laughs> like, you know, because like, like you should have to trust in the absence of verification. What you want is anywhere possible to implement verification things. Right. So that we, so we're left having to trust each other only in those places where it's not possible to do something else. So I'm, I think it's important. I actually think that, that the, the currency issue and these other things are critical when we think about free societies, which I think are, to me, my assumption is all the things you've been talking about are more likely to happen in free societies that, that give, create the space for individuals to make choices that may not be the same choices that other people would make. Um, and I think that if we don't get the technology right, the technology is either going to be the great empower of this, or it will be the chains that take us back into bondage. Yes. So we had touched upon a few uh, touch points. One is this space is, you know, sovereignty, right? Internal awareness of what my desire is. We touched a little bit about uh, uh, the infrastructure, right? The, the societal, the systematic capacity. Right. And then we also talk about sort of the cultural aspect of it. In my mind, these are some, well, you said it, I didn't say that you said these are sort of the, the, the linchpins of what it takes to create a society that empowers humans to thrive individually, not just for the average of all. So having looked at this since, uh, I think you started populist a little while back, right? Yep. It's been, yeah. we've been going at this for seven years yeah and then and then you also looked at you know the the influence of media uh machine learning and and different types of things so out of all the different variables that one could devote uh what for you is the the highest leverage point that you have sort of found or is it literally let a thousand flowers bloom we don't really know until you know one yeah. of them is going to succeed we we don't really know i mean i'm a big believer in that um, I'm, and I think that when that's the situation, you're better, you're best to bet on the house, right? Bet, bet on the farm, like just like, so what is the this, house? What, so the what house, house to are you me referring is, to? The, to me, when you think about what the one thing I would say is if, if I'm king for a day and I say, what's the condition that we need, um, in order to be most likely to get, to make the right choices, not just individually, but collectively that get us to the place we're talking about. And it's going to sound simple, but it's really critical. And it's, it's actually like, you need high levels of social trust. Like you need, because social trust is trust in people you don't know. Like, and it it's your willingness to refrain from trying to control them just because you don't agree with what it is they're doing. And mm -hmm. if, if you don't have that, because think about it, there's only two ways we can engage with each other as people, right? We can trust each other, which is meaning at a, at a minimum, 
it's that tolerance, which is I'm not going to try to stop you. But at best under trust, it's investment. It's a, I don't really, I can't believe you like what you like and I can't believe I would never do it. But I am confident that if we help you, you're going to do something amazing and your contribution is going to benefit everyone, right? The opposite of that trust is control. And when we get into a place where we feel like we have to control each other, that downward spiral inevitably descends into authoritarianism, inevitably. There, there isn't a, an example in history where that's not the case. And so to me, I feel like we're at this interesting inflection point where we've eked out as much as possible in a free society through standardization, right? And there were some gains. And the frontier now is the stuff you talk about. The frontier is there is a place that free societies could go that is so incomparable to authoritarian regimes. And that is the ability to unleash fulfillment and flourishing and contribution on a scale that we've not seen before in human history. That seems grand, but I'm telling you, we have all the know-how, all the technology, all the resources to make that true. What we don't have right now is the willpower. And that's to me like, so it's why I'm so concerned when you see social trust, it has declined generation over generation since we implemented this standardization covenant. Since Frederick Taylor and scientific management, and we start controlling each other, not surprisingly, every successive generation has had lower levels of social trust than the preceding generation. Um, you, we have. Can you, can you offer some maybe because that was that was beautiful articulation in terms of theory. Could you give us maybe a little bit of like concretely what may that look like? What what may be a feature of that? What may be a feature of of high social trust or of the, yeah exactly or how right. we get out of it right if you right exactly how how would you foster higher social trust because. Yep. Well, uh, it's obvious that we have very little trust towards the government, towards yep. the media. It's, it's, I mean, case in point, uh, Don't Look Up is, is a satire around right. that altogether, right? right so right, that's, right. that's sort of the zeitgeist of our time. So, yep. so knowing that, right, yep. and, and that's, if that's the direction we want to head towards, how do we rebuild back yep. the trust towards, you know, a particular system or a particular yep. group or a particular uh, industry? Like, how do right. we do that? Three things. Three things that, like, if you look at the social trust research, like there are three things. So first of all, the mistake we make with social trust is we let economists study it, which I, <laughs> some of my best friends are economists, but I don't care about the aggregate correlations. So they look at mm. it and go, high social trust ones have good welfare systems. Like, yes, but you don't know that having a good welfare system is what led to social trust, right? Mm-hmm. And like, I'm more interested in the psychological and the individual. What mm. do we know <clears throat> leads an individual to say, you know what? Most people can be trusted. And there's really three things as far as I'm concerned. And we focus pretty, pretty heavily on these. The first is shared values. So the moral foundation of all social trust is shared values. You and I clearly share a, a, a bond around certain views, right? Like, that's why I'm here. It's like, the fact that we care about these first principles together, all it's equal, I am more likely to trust you, right? Mm. Knowing nothing else about you. That kind of makes sense, right? Why does this matter? And say, well, yeah, man, in this society, we're like descending into like, we don't seem to have anything in common. This is where the collective illusion thing is so important because I'm telling you, we've studied more private opinion than any, I think anybody else in this country. And I am telling you across demographic and ideology, we have a shocking amount of shared values. But because we are convinced that it's not true, 
it is manifesting is not true. So this idea of collective illusions is so dangerous to society. And we've got to do something about that because we've got to reveal our shared values. The collective illusions phenomenon is that what ends up happening is using our conformity bias and our need to belong, that we end up misreading the group. And so you get this place where most people in a group go along with something they don't really agree with only because they think most people in the group agree with it. Right. And so like that is happening all over American society right now. It is shocking. You name anything that matters and it's a coin toss, whether there's a collective illusion there. And so like the simple way out of that, which will sound, it's hard, but it's, it's simple. And we know this from history. You can shatter those illusions the second people start being honest about what they think, right? And that's why, like, this shift in, in our culture towards being willing to destroy people's lives because we disagree with their views has, it's more than a political fi- uh, talking point, right? It's unacceptable because even if they are wrong, the silencing effect that it has creates and sustains collective illusions. So right now, we know from our own research and others that... Roughly two thirds of the American public say they self-silence, that they are not sharing views that they believe personally because they don't want to offend other people. That's not okay, even if we disagree with them, right? So we've got to recover that culture that respects difference of opinion and tolerates dissent, right? We have to. If you do that, well, I mean, if, if 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 I think about it personally, I mean, maybe I'm a pretty public person. So, was, uh, but but let's say someone who is generally private, right? What's there is no upside of sharing one's opinion. There's all the downside. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's no upside at all. So if yeah. you just even just do the internal calculus, it doesn't make sense to say yeah. anything unless, of course, you're a public intellectual like you or like me. Then you know we can pontificate all and- day. And unless you end up with a culture where the norms actually like there, there is a, a place where my need to belong leads me to be honest with you, right? That I owe you to tell the truth about what I think. Um, so we, we, we can do that and it, it does work. And like, if we, if we're committed to dismantling these illusions, it will start to elevate social trust. That's number one, right? The second will be also fairly simple, but this is why it's good the best predictor of whether someone is trustworthy is whether you treat them as trustworthy. Like, like it's, it's so the number of times we are, we have taught ourselves and we've been taught to distrust each other. Right. And so I'm not saying that you should make trusting acts like, Hey, here's my kids. I don't know you, but like, you know, or here's my life savings. I'm sure you'll do just fine. What I'm saying is, is that if each one of us looks in our lives daily, we make decisions where we choose to distrust, even though the consequences of someone violating our trust are so small, right? But the act of being treated as trustworthy is contagious. And so looking in our own lives in ways that we can signal trust to, to other people without putting our whole lives at risk and things is something every one of us can do, and it will really matter. The third thing, which is harder for any one person to do, but it's really important, is that our institutions, our public institutions have to trust the public. It's absurd. It's absurd that in a democracy, we have inverted the relationship between institutions and people. Up until Frederick Taylor and scientific management in the 1930s, it was taken for granted hmm. that, the, that public systems serve the public. 
But Frederick Taylor in, in his book actually said, in the past, people were first. In the future, the system has to be first. And we flipped that relationship. And now we all sort of think we just slot into these public institutions but that, that give us very little choice. The problem with that, whatever you get in the name of efficiency comes at the cost of trust. Because in, one thing we know for sure is that when we look at the way institutions treat people, people internalize that as, well, they must not be trustworthy, right? Like, and so let's just go back to uh, the poverty example. Our food stamps program spends roughly, and I'll get this wrong by a couple of percentage points, about 25 to 30% of all the money on overhead. Like to make sure that like some single mom in Oakland doesn't buy the wrong kind of peanut butter or something. I mean, like nothing says we don't trust people like being willing to spend a quarter of our tax money enforcing something where it's like, the flip side is something like earned income credit, which is a cash transfer, has 1% overhead. And like, it's wildly popular. So think about what it looks like when, and, and we've done this research too, in the space of poverty, most people who are poor and facing, and, and this comes as someone who was on welfare. That's right. Themselves for, for three years. That's right. That's right. When you ask them, are you trustworthy enough to be able to make, if we gave you cash, will you make good decisions as you understand them? Of course, of course. But when we ask, what do you think most people think? What about other people? Oh, no, 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 no. Most people couldn't be trusted. <laughs> like, like, like it's even, even people facing poverty think other people facing poverty aren't trustworthy to handle cash. But in fact, they all think they are. So like, imagine. But, but isn't power. that the human condition though? Like I, I'm better, like I'm more rational. I'm more you know, yeah. uh, sovereign then. Right. But isn't science and, and, and even contemplative tradition, like getting beyond the sort of base part of our human condition, right. Is it about channeling that in constructive ways and putting up like the guards so that we don't allow it to descend into something where we all lose. And so like with, with poverty, I'm just going to keep hammering this in terms of trust building. Sure. We have we have known since Richard Nixon. This is what will surprise people. Richard Nixon was days away from converting all welfare to cash transfer because they had set up experiments all over the country in the 70s to randomize control trials to figure out is this more efficient? Is it more effective? Does it work? And it conclusively lands as like it is so much better, right? And then one of his advisors made up some garbage story that turned out really to be fake news, scared him into thinking he was about to lose, he'd get, would get reelected. And they went the other way, but they had the whole program set up. So we've known this for a while, but, but paradoxically our distrust leads us not to take that next step. And that unwillingness to take that next step holds us back from actually elevating trust. But I promise you, if we do this tomorrow, if we treat poor people with dignity and, and, ensure that they have choices in their lives every bit the same that we have choices. Not only is it better for the economy, so they're actually participating in the free market, not only does it allow them to feel a sense of belonging and community instead of feeling like they're outside of the rest of us, but it will help us, right? It will help us in terms of 
like our trust levels. It will help us in terms of the contributions that they're going to make and their chance to have the kind of lives that you and I are talking about. So that's just one, but like you could go to like, and I don't, this will sound like I'm political. I'm rapidly independent. Um, <laughs> uh, when it comes to schools, God forbid parents have any say in where their kid goes to school, unless you're rich. Right. So it's just, there, there's over and over again, if we start thinking about, hold on, why do we allow our public institutions to treat us with distrust? Why do we end up distrusting each other on small things for which having our trust violated would not matter? And we continue to live through self-silencing under collective illusions, which hides from us our shared values, which are the moral foundation of trust. So you pointed out some faults of the systems and, and mm -hmm. you also pointed out the value priorities, right? And then you pointed out possible mechanisms to change that a la lobbying or some kind of policy change. We'll touch a little bit about technology solutions to do this. So in terms of operationalize this, do you see more lobbying to make this uh, policy change? Do you see more of a, the uh, software so, to help people make sovereign choices or a media company that highlights more dark horses? What do you see as the highest leverage action that one could take to create yeah. this cultural of change well, towards that direction? Well, you said the word. So I believe culture precedes policy. Like... We, we, we always think we need to go to a top-down solution. If we can just get the most powerful people to change, like some of that helps, right? Especially removing obstacles. But let's be clear, it's up to us. Public sentiment is the most powerful tool we have at our disposal, right? If we want this, we have to say so, right? And like, I, it, I think it's too much and not necessary for everyday people to have to engage in lobbying and like worry about policy. But right now, like for example, we know from private opinion research that most people in this country, an overwhelming majority, believe and want the world to operate from a positive sum perspective. And they absolutely reject zero sum thinking, but they believe they're a 5% minority in society. Well, behavioral economics shows us crystal clear even in a positive sum game, if the other person is behaving in a zero sum way, you need to behave in a zero sum way or you will be taken advantage of, right? I believe as a first step, we've got to shatter the illusion around zero sum thinking and, and, and you know, as, as a path to something better. At Populous, we actually have a lot more detail. I mean, more than we could go into right now, but we have a, a whole model on systems change from mm. complex systems. We have a culture model about and dealing with some of the things we just talked about. We have models for engaging in private opinion research. So we've got a lot of the under the hood stuff. But I think for everyday people, for people listening to this, like to recognize that when you look out amongst your fellow citizens, the vast majority of them want the exact same kind of life that you want privately. And it is not a zero sum life. It does not have to come at your expense. And if we can recognize that fact and we can see each other through a lens of cooperation and investment rather than cutthroat competition where somebody has to lose, we can actually get the world we want. It, it's closer than we think. Mm. Um, well, it actually reminds me of a book, Atomic Habits. You know, how do you change, how do you engineer habits change and so forth? Uh, 
I don't know about you, but in my mind, I'm thinking like, oh, okay, so maybe there's an atomic habit app of some sort to cultivate one's own trust in oneself as well as one's own trust towards yeah. my neighbor. What do you think about that yeah. idea? I love it. And, I, and it's a fantastic book, by the way. So I, I highly recommend Atomic Habits. <laughs> Anybody that, uh, yeah. Love it. And, and I think that like, right. So think about like the flywheel of if we can bust the illusion around positive some thinking and the way people think about success, then because think about it, even um, entrepreneurs are under the same illusions, right? So, so if I'm thinking about what do people need and what do they want? And I'm trying to, to add value there. I'm not going to like, like, I think that there, once we recognize that we all want this kind of life, right. And that, that we want it together, it unleashes the floodgates of innovation and entrepreneurship to start to provide the kinds of tools and services that we actually need that make this easier and scalable. Right. But, but as long as we're willing to live under these illusions, Right we are going to be stuck. Um, and, and I'll say it in, in sort of closing on this, this part, the, the bad thing about illusions is they're toxic when they're enforced, but they're actually fragile because they're based on a lie. And his, history has shown us when you actually shatter those illusions, social change happens at a speed and scale that is otherwise unimaginable. And, and my favorite example, and, and, and I'll end with this example because <laughs> it's probably way further along than, than you, you want to talk about. One of the most important um, social change things that I believe like throughout history is the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, if, if you ever, like, this is a story of overthrowing communism without anybody losing their life. Nobody. Mm. And what I love about the story is it was led by Václav Havel, who was a poet and a playwright. No, mm. no politician, no military. It involved no outside help. Um, and what he discovered and what made it possible versus almost every other Soviet satellite state, which is brutally suppressed when they tried to revolt, is he wrote a play called The Garden Party, which was a satire of communism. And it was mm. so subtle that the censors didn't recognize they were being made fun of. It was like the biggest runaway hit. It was like the Hamilton of its time. It was sold out forever. And he watched every night that people would laugh at all the right parts. And he said, you wouldn't laugh if you actually believed in communism. So he realized that people would, were all saying they believed in this system, but they didn't privately believe it. And so what he did was he wrote, like I would tell every listener, if you want to read something that is the most inspiring writing you're going to read in a long time, Václav Havel wrote this down in the thing called the power of the powerless. It's freely available as a PDF. on power of the palace, you said? Power of the powerless. Of the powerless, uh-huh. And he, he reveals this idea that we don't actually believe what we think we believe. And he said, listen, we've all come to learn to live within the lie. And if we can learn to live in truth, things can change. And he was mocked mercilessly. Like, you're not changing anything. He said, people need to learn to live in truth. They need to learn to be honest with each other about who they really are and learn to be more congruent this way. It, people thought he was crazy. They thought it's just not possible. You need military you need to form a political party. So he, he didn't even realize how fast it would change because like right before it all goes, comes down, he was interviewed in a foreign magazine and he said, Hey, listen, I'm in this fight for my life, but for the rest of my life, but I don't think I'll live to see the change. It, it's going to take that long. Three months later, 
he was the first democratically elected president of a free Czechoslovakia. What? Like, wow. And he went on to unify. He never formed a political party ever. So wow. look, if a poet can overthrow communism without anybody losing their life, I'm pretty sure we can solve our problems today. Right. So we have a lot of opportunity. We have resources. We have know-how. And we actually share a lot of aspirations and values in common. What's holding us back is the misunderstanding that we actually share those things in common. Do you feel that there's a national national happiness index? I forgot which country was it. Um, somewhere near Bhutan. That's right. Bhutan. Bhutan. That's right. Bhutan. And, and I thought that was a, such a beautiful uh, scorecard of this fulfillment thing that we talked about because it's very esoteric. It's hard to measure. It's very yeah. internal, right? It's very subjective. What do you think about that idea? Is that that idea is too I, esoteric, worthy to no. die, or so? So here, here's what I'd make one change. Mm. Um, I like the impulse for it. And then it was done by people who don't trust everybody. Because the one thing they don't actually ask in the happiness index are, are you happy? Mm. <laughs> like, like, so they say, we know the, the, the things that everybody needs to be happy and we'll measure those things and then we'll tell you who has them. Mm. I believe a more reliable indicator, and this is borne out in research, is not, you don't have to trust me on this, is, subjective well-being life satisfaction we know how to measure that but but to me like what difference does it make it if you it, so you have this amazing podcast you do stuff like i don't know how much money you make i don't really care i don't care about that stuff it doesn't really matter right like what matters is how do you feel about your life right and trusting people to tell us whether they actually like the life they're living is important and so we have mm -hmm. measures of that. So at Populous, that is that is our ultimate metric on everything we use is whether people believe they are living the kind of lives they want to live. And mm -hmm. then doing the hard work of understanding what's under the hood to the extent they're not so we can create conditions that allow them to have better opportunities to pursue the things that matter mm -hmm. to them. But I do think it, the impulse towards it is better, right? Like, like the ultimate goal is to create a society. Like, look, I mean, the perfect society would be one where everybody's maxed out in terms of their own subjective well-being, right? But the thing is, is if you think about under the subjective well-being, and this is really important, despite it being highly personal and subjective, there are three universals that drive subjective well-being. Your needs being met, which you can do in a standardized way, really, right? Like, like people need food, shelter. Okay, fine. Once you have those needs met, it comes down to just two other things. Do I have the opportunity to satisfy my desires, right? Like pursue the things that matter to me, my wants. Doesn't mean you have to get them, but it's the pursuit of happiness. The final thing is control, choices, right? Autonomy, so econ right, right. Yep. A, a, economists call it procedural utility because they don't know how to name things. But like, um, <laughs> Terrible, you know, <laughs> they just take, they take an obvious thing and give it the worst possible names. But procedural utility is a cool thing, which is most people will give up they'll take lesser outcomes if they have a say in the choices that get them to the outcome. Now, if you put those three things together, needs, wants, and control, it starts to help us understand the conditions we would create to ensure people have a good shot at living a good life. Right. And now we go back to say, that's why I was on my hobby horse about poverty. Right. There is a way to ensure that people are not in a state of need that also gives them more control of their life. And there's a way to do that that robs them of control. 
But if we recognize we are trying to optimize those three things for everybody, we would have never done that. Last right. question. What's one thing you would say to the younger version of Todd who is contemplating, who's not sure he's making the right choice and leaning into his curiosity, his passion, his desire for his intrinsic desire. That's a key word, right? For you, yep. intrinsic desire for fulfillment. What would you say to the younger Todd? So what I would say um, is that I, I would say that like this, this, you've got to find this middle ground between knowing who you are and trusting yourself and actually listening to other people. Because I went from do, doing what anybody said and having it not work to just rejecting it, like as if like nobody can tell me what to do. And like, that's stupid too, right? Like, like we're social creatures and we can learn from each other and I don't need to make every mistake the hard way. Um, but that balance of, of learning to ultimately recognizing only you can make the choices in your life, but that you can listen to other people and learn from other people. And if you get that balance right, more often than not, you're going to make really good decisions. Beautiful. And, is that? And, and by the way, it's going to work out. It's going to work out. Like, it, like, I mean, for me personally, I'm, I'm living on welfare, you know, with two kids and a minimum job. And you could, you could, you could say, well, listen, I made some bad choices. My life is what it is. Or you can say it's never too late to turn it around. It's never too late to get on this path that you talk about. And for me, I feel like I'm playing with house money now, right? It's a great life. Mm. Todd, before I acknowledge you in a moment, where can people find your next book? When is it coming out? I think it's February 1st. What February 1st, uh, Collective Illusions. You can get it. Amazon, um, like and anywhere books are sold, <laughs> right? Um, oh. I think you'll like it. I'm really proud of it. Do you have like a, a specialized book URL you want to send people to or just Amazon? Yeah, if you go to toddrose.com, there, there's a book page too, if that's easier. Awesome. Hey, Todd, thanks for sharing so much for sharing who you are, right? As you said earlier, you know, the, the, the courage, the willingness to express truth. You certainly did that. You got very passionate about <laughs> your dharmic path, about like enlightening others about the collective illusion, such that they have more sovereignty, such that they have more um, uh, freedom and to to choose their life. You share your stories, you share your principles, you share your research, you even share sort of the forward-looking, forward-thinking, if you're a king for a day, what you would do, right? All those things. Um, really, really just so appreciative of you sharing who you are. Thank you. I had a great time.